Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are in the midst of our series in the book of Exodus, and we are at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law to Israel through Moses. And we're slowing down a bit here at the Ten Commandments. We're going to go through each commandment one at a time. And the second commandment is one of those things where if you did not grow up in a traditional Presbyterian environment, the classic Reformed teaching on the second commandment, it might sound a little strange, uh, maybe even a bit severe. And we do not wish, of course, to be unduly offensive, but we do want to be clear. We want to be faithful to what the Bible teaches and faithful to our confessional standards. We want to be clear, but also patient and pastoral and understanding. Now, some of you may have questions on some of these things. And maybe you need some time to mull things over, and that's fine. But let us strive to give ourselves over to God's word and to trust that the word and the spirit will work in our hearts to bring us into greater conformity to the mind of Christ. So today we're thinking about the second commandment. If you were with us a few Lord's Days ago, you'll remember the first commandment has to do with worshiping the one true God, worshiping the right God, that we need to reject every false God and worship the true God alone. Well, the second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way, in the right manner. So first, let's read from God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing. Exodus 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 just now. This is God's holy word. Take heed how we hear it, friends. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth in all our hearts. Let's pray. O Lord, grant the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we pray, on the assembly of your people here, that as we read and study your word as it's proclaimed, may we also receive illumination so that we might understand, that we might believe the word, and that we might rest on Christ and trust in him as he speaks to us and as he comes to us by the ministry of his Holy Spirit in and through this, his holy word. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen. You may have heard the quip before, many, many, many a preacher has used it over the years. In the beginning, God made man in his own image, and ever since then, man has been trying to return the favor. One of the fundamental distinctions of Christianity, especially over against other major world religions, is that we are a word-based faith. In the beginning was the word. You know that from John chapter 1. The word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, and God spoke, and creation happened. God spoke in ages past to our fathers by the prophets, Hebrews chapter 1. 
that spoken word was eventually written down and codified and is now what we have in our Bibles. Christians have sometimes been called a people of the book. Now, that is, by the way, why we make our services, our worship services, so word-centric. God has come to us. He has revealed himself to us in his word. This is how we know him, not through dreams and visions, not through images, but through his word. And so we read God's word and we preach God's word. And when we pray, we will often pray God's word back to him. And when we sing, we often sing God's word back to him. And in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it has so often been said throughout church history that we see God's word made visible, that the promises of God put in a tangible expression. We'll say more about that later. We have, as other theologians have put it, we do not have an image-based liturgy, but a word-based liturgy, a word-based liturgy. God speaks in his word, and his people listen. This is what the second commandment is driving at. Like we saw a few weeks ago back in Exodus chapter 19, do you remember the overarching principle there? The overarching principle was that the king has decided how he would like to be worshipped and how he would not like to be worshipped. The king gets to decide, not me, not you, but the king gets to decide how he would like to be approached and how he would like to be worshipped. Now, as we've noted before in the first commandment, the law is spiritual and it's comprehensive. That is, each commandment, each of the ten, is a summary for a whole larger category of sins that are forbidden and duties that are required of us. And, And more than just a bare forbidding against making images of our immortal, invisible God, the second commandment is teaching us positively that God wants to be worshipped in his way, not according to our own vain imaginations. How many of us, we've gone on vacation and we've taken pictures of breathtaking vistas? You take a picture on your phone or even even on a high-level professional camera, you take a picture of the Grand Canyon or Pikes Peak, or the Swiss Alps, or the sweeping valley as we stand on a mountaintop, and we throw those pictures up on our social media, and we say, it was so beautiful, but the picture just doesn't do it justice. That statement could just as well apply to issues of images of God. The picture will not adequately match the reality. Given our finite mortal minds, our attempts to depict God with images will always fall short of the real thing, always. And because of that, they will necessarily distort the truth of God every time. And that is very much the message of the second commandment that's now before us in Exodus chapter 20. So three things that I'd like for us to see this morning, three things. And the first of them we see there in verses 4 and 5, that is the command. The first thing, the command. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heavens above or the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. That means that there's nothing in creation which we may use to depict or represent God. We may use nothing in creation to make an image of him, to turn an icon, to turn into an icon or to turn into an aid for devotion. God may not be represented by creaturely form nor by the inventions of a creaturely imagination. Why not? Well, as we 
might read in the New Testament from John chapter 4, many of you will know that passage very well. Jesus, in speaking to the Samaritan woman, remember what he says to her there in John 4, verse 24? God is spirit, and to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Our, our Westminster Confession expands on that and says, God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He's immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible. Or, you really can't go wrong with the theology in the children's catechism. Boys and girls, many of you will know the question from the, shorter, excuse me, from the children's catechism. You might know this by heart. What is God? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We are not to make images of God because all images, whether they're sculpted or painted or acted out or imagined in our minds, they will all inevitably, inevitably fall short of the truth. God is to be worshipped, not by the inventions of our own minds or our own preferences. That is the overarching thrust of the second commandment as our Westminster Catechism so helpfully teach us and help us to better understand. And you know, this is not just strict teaching from some overzealous Presbyterians. The truth is, our Lord knows us. God knows us. He made us, after all. He said, he has said, that this is what the sinful human heart is inclined to do, to make idols after the image of creatures. Go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. You know what it says, many of you, the Apostle Paul. He says there in Romans 1, 21, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what Paul says. To conceive of God by things of our own invention, Paul is saying, it's the fruit of foolish minds. It's our arrogance on display. We think, when we do such things, we think we know better than God. But we do not make a God, do we, brothers and sisters? He makes us. We do not depict him. Rather, he reveals himself to us. He comes to us. Now, sometimes... One of the misunderstandings that people state when they read this commandment, and it's understandable, they'll say, well, is this, a, is this a prohibition against all art? Does God hate artistic skillfulness? Is this a, a prohibition against painting a picture of a mountain or a picture of birds or landscape or a sculpture like Michelangelo's David? Well, no. I like the King James Version where it translates the Hebrew here as graven image or the ESV translation where it says carved image. An idol was something crafted by a tool, whether it was carved out of wood or chiseled out of stone or engraved in metal. It was cut and shaped by human hands. It was a man-made representation of some divine being. That's why, by the way, the later Old Testament prophets, they mock idolaters so much for worshiping their man-made idols. We think of the absurdity of it, and the prophets help us get our heads around that. You could think of Amos, Isaiah. There's lots of other examples. Effectively, they're saying, you people pray to this thing like a god. You made it. You chopped down the tree out in the field yourself, and you carved this little wooden statue with your own hands, and now you pray to it and worship it as if it were divine. 
It's a hobby plaything. It's utterly preposterous. Why in the world would you do that? Now, the second commandment did not mean that the Israelites were forbidden to use tools or forbidden to produce artwork. Later, when it was time to build the tabernacle, God sent the Israelites his spirit, quote, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. That's Exodus 31, verses 4 and 5. Our sister tradition, the Continental Reform tradition, and their Heidelberg Catechism, question 97, is helpful here at this point as well. I've included in there, by the way, in the sermon outline in that handout, uh, the relevant catechism questions that might be useful to you for study. The WSC, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the WLC, that's the Westminster Larger Catechism, and then the Heidelberg Catechism, the relevant questions there in those catechisms as they pertain to the Second Commandment. There's so much to talk about that we can't simply do it in one morning sermon, but pondering those catechism questions and thinking through them and reading through them and studying through them on your own will better help, I think, to reinforce some of the things we're thinking about this morning. What the Second Commandment ruled out was making things to serve as objects of worship. This is clarified, by the way, in the second part of the rule, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And we get more clarification with a list of the kinds of idols God forbids. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That's pretty comprehensive. Remember what the Israelites had been living with, with the Egyptians for 400 years. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, nearly all of which were represented by animals, by creatures. The god Horus had the head of a falcon. The god Anubis had the head of a jackal, and so on and so forth. God knows that they, the Israelites, were likely to be influenced in their worship ideas by Egyptian paganism. And, sadly, God has proven right in just a few chapters in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Another thing that's worth saying is worth noting that, contrary to what some of our detractors might say, Reformed and Presbyterian people don't just like making up rules. Sometimes when people encounter this teaching on the second commandment, they think it's just a kind of legalism, uh, extra made-up rules meant to rain on someone's enthusiasm and impose some sort of dour demeanor upon people. And the answer to that allegation is no. This understanding of the second commandment, it's not rooted in severity or a kind of gleeful harshness, but it's motivated out of love for God. We love God. We love God as his people. And because we love God, we want to do things which please God. It's really not any more complicated than that, dear friends. We love God, and so we want to do things which please God. And because God's word says, do not make images of me, we take him at his word, and we strive to obey him in that regard. And so, while all all Christians love God, surely... In distinction from, for example, our Lutheran or our Anglican or other Protestant brethren, we are persuaded that a policy of no images of God, whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, that is the most faithful manner in which to obey this second commandment as it comes from the mouth of God himself. We love him. He saved us. He redeemed us. He's made us his own. And so we want to do what pleases him 
especially when he has told us exactly what pleases him and what displeases him. For example, if my wife asked me, in a few years, for your 40th birthday, if I can take you anywhere in America, where would you like to go? And I said, you know, I would love to get a cabin out west, take you and the kids, maybe in the Rocky Mountains, maybe near Zion National Park, something like that. That's what I would love to do for my 40th birthday. And she said, great, I've just booked a week for you to go swamp hunting in the Louisiana Bayou. Well, I I didn't say that at all. I would begin to question my wife's hearing or perhaps her affection for me if she booked me such a trip as that. Likewise with God. He has told us what he loves. He's told us what displeases him. And so we ought to strive to live and worship accordingly. And so this is why historically, Reformed and Presbyterian churches have not had images of Jesus or the Father or the Holy Spirit in their church buildings, for example. Whether it's on posters or whether it's in stained glass windows or whether it's in Sunday school materials. That's why we discourage images of Jesus being used in children's Bibles or certain TV productions like the current popular one, The Chosen. And by the way, as an aside, you should be aware that that TV show is also heavily influenced by heretical Mormon theology. They put lots of words in Jesus' mouth that he never said, according to the scripture. So besides being a second commandment issue, it's also tainted and influenced by the teachings of an unbiblical cult. You should be aware of that. But, folks will say, but Jesus was a man. He had a human body, did he not? Yes, he did. Yes, he does. The problem, though, is that unlike us, Jesus has two natures. We have one nature. We're human beings. But Jesus is God and man, divine and human nature, two natures in one person. And that means that if we attempt to paint, for example, a merely human Jesus, we are not accurately representing the only Jesus who's ever existed. God and man in two natures, in one person forever. How can we rightly depict Jesus' divinity? We can't. And so even if we could rightly depict Jesus' humanity, it would still be a sub-biblical, incomplete impoverished, inaccurate Jesus. A picture of the humanity of Jesus alone is not a picture of the whole, full, and biblical Jesus. Folks may be well-intentioned, but these efforts ultimately flip the formula around. And as one man said, an effort like that is an effort to strive to walk by sight and not by faith. The Bible gives us the only access we have to Jesus Christ. We need no other. We must learn to be content with the voice of God speaking in Holy Scripture. What about a teaching tool? What about as a teaching tool? That's sometimes something that we'll often hear, even in the PCA. Someone might say, well, what about simple images of Jesus in a a story Bible for children? Not, Not something to worship. They don't pray to it. They don't bow down to it. But just for pedagogical purposes, for example. Well, I rather like the answer that's given, again, from our sister tradition, from the Heidelberg Catechism, this time, question 98, it says this. What about these pedagogical purposes? It says, no, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God. God will have his people taught not by dumb or mute images, but rather by the lively preaching of his word. 
You see, dear brothers and sisters, our attitude to the second commandment ultimately comes down to this. We must not think ourselves to be wiser than God. We cannot improve upon the plan for our piety that he's already given to us. We must not think ourselves wiser than God. It's interesting that as much detail as the Bible gives us about so many things, for example, the cubits of length when Noah built the ark, or the number of blue thread loops on the curtains for the tabernacle, we're given so much exacting detail on so many things in Holy Scripture, we are not given a detailed description of the visage of Jesus of Nazareth. You ever thought about that? In fact, Isaiah 53, in speaking about the coming Messiah, and speaking about the suffering servant, in describing the appearance of him, the Lord Jesus, it says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he was, by human appearance standards, somewhat unremarkable blending in with the crowds. Even the description given to us of the glorified King Jesus in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, even that is rather restrained and generic in how it describes him. Colors and a golden sash and feet like bronze, but it's not overly detailed. Moreover, when it comes to the image of God, the Bible consistently speaks of Jesus as the image of God. We read it earlier from Colossians 1. He, verse 5, is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In the upper room, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. Let us see God. To which Philip replies, or excuse me, to which Jesus replies, have I been with you so long And you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, brothers and sisters, look to Jesus Christ. And where do you find what Jesus Christ is like? How might you see Jesus, so to speak? It's right here. Right here in his word. He has been pleased to reveal himself to you. You don't have to go hunting for him. You don't have to go searching him out. No need to conjure up your own method for figuring out what he's like. It's right here. He's made it available. He's brought it to you. Here you may discover his person, his character, his attributes, his message, his life and atoning death, his glorious resurrection, his words of love and life. Christ Jesus is enough. He is the image of the invisible God. God's self-disclosure to you. You may see God in him, and you may meet him in this book, in the pages of Holy Scripture, God's revelation of himself. God is a spirit, and no image, no man-made image can ever possibly do him justice. That's the first thing, the command itself. But then secondly, much more briefly, in verse 5, we see the basis of the command. The basis of the command Here's one of the reasons God gives us to obey his commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. You shall not make any carved images. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealousy is one of those attributes that when we employ it, it's often sinful. Jealousy for our neighbor's possessions makes us covet and break the 10th commandment. 
for example. But our God is holy, and all his actions, all his adjectives, all his attributes are always holy and without sin and without flaw. For God to be jealous of the affections of his people is a good and holy and sinless thing. One commentator says this, Divine jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy. Rather, it is, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. Isn't that lovely? An intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. In a similar way that a mother is jealous to guard the safety of her children, or a husband is jealous for his wife's affection, and he would never wish to find her drawn into the arms of another man, so too with God and his people, an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. The second commandment tells us that God has a zeal that you, his people, would not settle for a cheap, paltry, and ultimately unsatisfying substitute, but that you would only settle, you would only be pleased with for the real thing, God himself. And what is the evidence of God's jealous zeal for the love of his people? God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the cross where the image of the invisible God, God enfleshed, was maimed, torn and slain, brutalized. Here's the measure of his commitment to this guarding of your hearts. Here's the measure of his jealous zeal, his holy zeal for his people, his love for his people. The second commandment is actually an expression of God's zealous love for his people's hearts. To keep yours, to guard them for eternity. That you may know him rightly, that you may know him as he really is. That's the second thing. So first the command, then second the basis of the command, and then finally the promise accompanying the command. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a promise there, isn't there, of both judgment and grace. And we often struggle with this commandment, especially the promise of judgment when we read it there. It seems unfair. Four generations are visited with the iniquity of their fathers. And yet, despite our discomfort initially when we read that in the text, we have to admit that we see this reality played out all the time. Some of you have seen this in your own families, or maybe in families of your relatives or neighbors, where rebellions crop up generation after generation, addictions and wickedness, patterns of dis destructive behavior. There's a healthy fear and trembling that should come upon us when we read this command, a healthy fear and trembling that should come upon us and we consider the prospect. What happens, what happens if I, one of God's blood-bought people, what happens if I play fast and loose with the commands of God? What happens if I disregard his word and rather than trying to bring my life into conformity with his word, I try to accommodate God to my preferences. It's a dangerous thing. 
not just for our own souls, but for our household and for generations to come. This commandment is reminding us. What will the inheritance be that we leave to our children? Will we love God and love him the way that he has instructed? Will our children see us praising Christ, confessing sin, repenting for the ways that we've failed, striving to follow after him in newness of life? Or will they not? Notice here the word to parents, especially fathers. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me and showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Dads, it is our task in particular to pursue the hearts of our children. Will we teach them the truth and point them to Christ? Will we model godliness and faithfulness for them? Will we pray with our children and for our children? Will we ensure that we are with them in the place that God has ordained Lord's Day by Lord's Day to hear his word proclaimed? Will we bring them to hear the words of life faithfully? This is our great calling. And if you're single or widowed or not yet married, you are still a father or mother figure to the covenant children of this congregation. If you're a member of this church... You vowed at these children's baptisms to assist their parents in rearing them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Our covenant children look up to you. How thankful I am for how you model the love of Christ and love for Christ to them. How I love to hear my children talk about people in our church who aren't related to us, who aren't mom or dad. Dad, you should have heard Mr. So-and-so praying today. It was great. Dad, did you see Miss So-and-so singing in worship today? You could tell she loved it. Covenant Presbyterian Church, you are fathers and mothers in the faith to our covenant children in a real way, even if they're not your blood relation. And we love you for it. Help us leave a legacy of faith to thousands of generations by loving God and keeping his commands. And you know, in closing, in God's marvelous kindness, isn't it wonderful that today... We're taking the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We didn't plan it this way initially, but in God's kind providence, this is how the sermon series lined up. We do not worship God through images or craft images of him, but in God's kind condescension to us as flesh and blood people who so often crave tangible things, who crave things that we can see and taste and grip, he has To use Calvin's language, he has stooped down to meet us in our weakness and give us these tangible signs and tokens to sustain our faith. We say that we need something visible. God has given that to us in his sacrament. Here are the images God has provided. God's visible word. Here at the table we may look and see and taste and smell and hear and eat. A tangible reminder, a physical reminder of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. A tangible reminder of Christ's dogged commitment to be true to his covenant and to be kind to our souls, no matter what it costs him and no matter what we deserve. What a mercy. The second commandment says that we do not imagine God in whatever way best suits us, but rather we bow in holy awe and we conform ourselves to his sovereign will. And it is his sovereign will to be merciful to us in Christ. And in him, in Christ, he has provided more than all we need. Praise him for it. Let's pray together. Lord, we do bless you for your word. 
We praise you for speaking to us in it, and we ask now that you'd seal your word to our hearts, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, and that you'd fill our hearts with more ardent love for him, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.